into God's Word, uh, 1 Corinthians 7, and we're taking uh, two passages. This is going to be, uh, we, we had a sermon on singleness just a few months ago. There's another sermon on singleness. I know, I know there's no title in the, in the bulletin there. And we're going to look at uh, chapter 7, verses 6 to 9, and then we're going to skip down uh, to verse 25. And, you know, let me just say it at the outset, there's quite a lot in this passage. There's a lot of questions and things that we're going to work through, so keep the passage in front of you so you can follow along. And uh, we have, we have uh, a lot of work to do on this passage. So, First uh, Corinthians chapter 7, starting in verse 6, hear God's word to you. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. But, to the, uh, but each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And skipping down uh, to verse 25, now, concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly towards, uh, toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we thank you for your words, filled with so many strange passages like this one, and passages that when we give our minds to them, 
they bring forth treasures. And so we pray that as we study your word, you would send your spirit that who, he, he leads us into all truth. And we need him to lead us into all truth now. So bring your light to this passage and now apply it into each one of our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, we're continuing our study through 1 Corinthians, and the last passage that we looked at, if you were here, this is about a month ago, was uh, a passage about uh, sex and marriage. And if you were here for that passage, one of the things I mentioned in that, pa- in that sermon was that one of the reasons that a sermon on sex and marriage actually applies to everyone, even if you're not married, is because all topics in the Bible, including something like sex and marriage, are ultimately about the gospel. And so they apply to all of us because sex and marriage is a picture of the gospel. It's about, it's about Jesus coming and drawing us to God so that we could have a union with God. It's about the marriage of heaven and earth coming together. That's what the gospel is all about. Well, um, this week we're talking about singleness and it turns out that the principle works the other way as well. It's not just that single people need to hear about sex and marriage because it's about the gospel, but it's also true that all of us need to hear about singleness because singleness is about the gospel as well. Jesus was a single man whose whole life was devoted to the Lord and his kingdom, and because of that devotion, he's now reconciled us to God. And so thinking about singleness, having a, topic, you know, a sermon about singleness, actually applies not just to single people in our church, but to all of us. And um, the reason I say this is that you know, in the church, we often think that the Bible teaches that marriage and family is the most desirable option for a Christian. It's the best thing for a Christian is to get married and have lots of children. And yet, as it turns out, we looked at a passage uh, in Matthew 19 several months ago, Jesus' teaching on this, and now we're looking at uh, Paul's teaching on this in 1 Corinthians 7, and both of them agree that actually the opposite is true. That actually singleness is, can be or is better than a married life. It, it, I think that's surprising to many of us, and actually... Uh, I mentioned this about a month ago, but I want to go over this again. The, the, verse 1 in chapter 7, for those of you who have a Bible with you, you can read this. Paul says this. This is how he opens this whole chapter. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, so the Corinthians had written a letter to Paul, Paul says, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, Uh, this verse, there's actually a fair amount of controversy about what Paul is talking about in this passage because most traditional commentators have read that verse and understood that Paul was saying, actually a single life is better. It's better if someone does not get married and devote their life to, you know, the comforts of a married life and sex, but it's better for them to remain single. And now most modern commentators, though, have said, you know, that doesn't make sense because... Uh, the Bible has a very positive view of marriage and positive view of sex. You know, in the beginning it says it's not good for man to be alone and God gives Adam a wife. And so they said it, it must be impossible. This line where it says it is good for a man not to touch a woman, that must be what the Corinthians believe. And they must have wrote in their letter, hey Paul, isn't it better for a man not to touch a woman? And Paul is now going to answer that. Now, the problem with that is, uh, first of all, that... Uh, Paul, in this chapter, says that he thinks a single life is better. But also, it would be strange for the Corinthians 
To be people who say it's better to not touch a woman, everything that we've read about the Corinthians is they're doing a little bit too much woman touching. Uh, there's, uh, if, you know, 1 Corinthians 5, if you were here for that passage, was apparently there's some guy in the church who's sleeping with his stepmom, and the whole church is fine with it. And Paul's like, are you crazy? Like, the pagans don't even do that, and you're doing that? And then chapter 6, it turns out there's men in their congregation who are frequenting prostitutes. And so, apparently, there's too much sex happening in this church. And so what Paul says, this line must be from Paul. And in fact, uh, what John Calvin says about this passage is that Paul is not talking about the badness of sexual activity. He is talking about the goodness of singleness. There is a goodness to singleness. And uh, this is confirmed in verse 7. Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am. He's a single man. He said, I wish there were more people whose lives were freed up by being single. And then in verse 8 it says, To the unmarried and widows I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Paul was a single man whose whole life was devoted to serving the Lord, and he says he wishes there were more Christians who were fully devoted to God's kingdom. We largely don't think that way. Is that right? We don't think that way. Um, as American Christians, we tend to think that the only fulfilling, God-honoring life is a good Christian family with lots of children. And this means that this passage on singleness has something to teach not just those of us who are single, but all of us. Why is marriage and family so idolized among us that Paul's words here seem extreme? Many of us think this is extreme. We have idolized marriage and family to say this is the only good life. And so we have to ask that if marriage and romantic love and having children were not the most important things in the world to Paul, what was the most important thing? For many of us, that is the most important thing. That's the primary thing we long for is just is children and, and uh, sexual intimacy with someone, relational intimacy with someone. And um, it's a question for all of us, whether we're single or married, what is the most important thing that we want in our lives? So this morning I want to look at three things that Paul says to all of us that all of us can learn from his vision of the single life. And this is what the three things are. That singleness is a gift. Second, singleness is a resolve. And third, singleness is freedom. Singleness is freedom. Okay, three things. First, singleness is a gift. And you see that there in verse 7. Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Paul says that embracing a single life, the ability to embrace and believe that a single life is a good life, a good vision of the life, is something that God has to grant to someone as a, good, as a gift. And actually, you know, I mentioned that we just talked about singleness back in May as we were looking at Jesus' teaching on singleness in Matthew 19. And if you're here for that passage, it's a very strange passage where Jesus says uh, it, it is better to not get married, but only those who can receive it uh, are, are able to embrace it. But then he says... You know, there's all kinds of reasons that people are single. And he uses this image of the eunuch. And he says, you know, some people are born a eunuch. Some people have, were born just with, 
you know, a sexual deformity so that they actually can't have sexual relationships. But then he says other people are made eunuchs by other people. We have a single life because, not because it was our choice, but it was imposed on us by the world. You know, maybe it's, no one would marry us. And it, our, just our situation in life has forced us to have a single life. But then he says that there's other people who make a conscious decision that they want to be single because they only want to serve the Lord. And what's so shocking about Jesus' passage, uh, Jesus saying, is that he says that if you're in any one of those three situations, it is possible to receive your singleness as a gift. It's not just the third one, the person who's decided to follow the Lord, but anyone who's found themselves to to have a single life. It is possible to receive that as a gift from the Lord. It's quite shocking. And... um, and so, you know, we're going to uh, talk a little bit later about why it is a gift, but let me just uh, say a couple things about the implications of this first point. That first of all, what that tells us is there is no one who is not gifted, who is not blessed with a spiritual blessing from God. That's what it says there, verse 7. But each has his own gift from God. Now, I think that many of us who are single don't view it that way, right? We would say, no, I haven't received the gift from God yet. I haven't received it. I'm waiting for the gift because I want to be married. And I haven't received the gift. And he says, no, everyone's received their gift. And um, how can we ever, uh, how can we view whatever situation we are in as a gift? And this is not just true for single people who want to be married, but for all of us. We have to learn that whatever situation God has put us in, it is possible to view that situation as a gift from him. Um, And that viewing it that way is essential for serving the Lord well. And until we view it that way, we cannot serve him. And, you know, I, I know that some of you might say, you know, that sounds great, but it's very hard for me to understand how the loneliness of singleness maybe the disappointment of not finding someone, or just even the alienation, you know, of feeling like an outsider, like everyone else has got a family, I don't have a family, I feel like an outsider maybe in church life. How could I understand seeing any of those things as a gift? How could you ever call that a gift? And I, I think the answer is that we have to ask, you know, how does the Bible view a gift? Because for us, when we hear the word gift, we think of, like, someone gave me a present, you know, actually... Today's my 35th birthday, and uh, this morning, I, oh, no clapping, no clapping. Uh, and this morning, uh, my, I, in my email, Mike and Amy Hollister sent me a Kindle book. They each sent me a Kindle book as a gift. They thought, this is a book that I thought you would like. And they were, and I was excited. I was like, all right, I got a gift. And I think that's generally how we think of gifts, things that are going to make me happy. But when the Bible talks about a gift, it has a very different definition um, because the word here for gift is uh, charisma, which is where, you know, it's where we get the word uh, charisma or charismatic. And in the Bible, a gift is a power, an ability to affect other people's lives. That's what a gift is. It's not, it's not just a present. It's like not a new lawnmower that I really wanted. It's a power. It's a gift to affect other people's lives. And if you're fil- familiar with 1 Corinthians, this book, actually 1 Corinthians has the, Paul's most extensive teaching on spiritual gifts in chapters uh, 12 through 14. He talks extensively about spiritual gifts. And in that section, he says, you know, the church is filled with all kinds of gifts. Some people can teach. Some people have great faith. 
Some people have a discerning wisdom about them. Some people are just administrative, and they're just very helpful at running things. He says everyone's got a gift. And this is how Paul defines a gift in 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. A manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. And what that means is what a gift is, is a power present in someone that means that you are able to encourage others and bless others in such a way that you make visible God's invisible kingdom to people that can't see it. And what Paul is saying that it's possible if you're a single person, there is a special power in that. And, you know, I I find that... uh, fascinating because I think we generally think of singleness the opposite. It, the experience of it is not as an experience of power, but it's an experience of powerlessness. Right? We feel powerless. And for Paul to say, actually, singleness has the potential for a power in it, what is that? Well, that raises a couple questions. First of all, how do we move from experiencing singleness as powerlessness to experiencing it as power? And the second question is, what exactly is the power of singleness? What is the power? And this is what the second two, our, our second third points are going to address. So first of all, how, do we, how can our experience begin to change from an experience of powerlessness to power? And Paul's answer is, this is our second point, that singleness is a resolve. There must be a resolve about approaching singleness. And uh, what is a resolve? And I, you know, I like how Paul defines it. Skip, skip down to verse 37. I, I'm going to be kind of bouncing around this passage, kind of a complex passage. But this is, this is one of the ways he puts it. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, you hear that? Firmly established in his heart. Being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, Oh, I wrote this wrong in here. Okay, hold on. Skip over. Let me read that again. Okay? Verse 37. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. And he uses this language of firmly established in our heart uh, and determined in our heart. Both of these things are a part of the Christian life a part of viewing ourselves, viewing our situation, and that there is a determining in our heart that whatever situation we have, I am resolved that this is a gift from the Lord. It is from the Lord's hand in order to serve him and to serve his kingdom. Now, it turns out in this uh, passage, Paul says that there are a couple things that make it hard for the Corinthians to view this, to have this resolve. It is both their culture that they're living in And it's also the context of the church, some of the things that are happening in their church's life. And I want to talk about both of these. First of all, the culture that the Corinthians were living in. Now, the Corinthians have obviously written Paul asking him about marriage, asking him about single life, asking him about sex, and he's addressing those things. And um, the reasons for bringing these questions up are very different than Paul's reasons for talking about them. Because Corinth, as I've mentioned, was a port city. And it was very uh, metropolitan. It was multicultural. There were Romans there. There were Greeks there. There were Jews there who had all different kind of ideas about marriage and sex and sexuality. And what we know about Greek and Roman understanding of marriage 
is that essentially marriage is a hassle. Okay, you know, a man needs to get a wife because he needs to have legitimate children and he needs someone to manage his home. But the, uh, the Greeks were very clear that, you know, getting sexual fulfillment, you don't need a wife for that. You could have uh, a mistress that could be either a, a lover or a prostitute. You could have a concubine who's a female slave who both does work for you and can sexually gratify a man. And so um, there was kind of a tension where on the one hand, the Greeks said, you know, you kind of need a wife, but it's kind of a hassle and it's actually better to just live a single life. And so Paul is saying in this passage, well, he actually thinks also that a single life is better. But, um, and they might have thought that that sounded very similar uh, to Greek and Roman ideas, but it's actually very different because this is what he says in verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. The Corinthians' sexual and marriage ethics have been largely shaped by Greek and Roman views of marriage and sex. And what he says is that the beginning of honoring God with singleness is through sexual purity, which was radically different than what, uh, what the culture had been telling them. This is a radically different view of, of singleness. He says the only reason you can be single is if you can keep your sexual passions under control. And um, there is a, a kind of resolve for singleness, um, which we see in our culture as well. There are many people in our culture who say, you know, I'm resolved to be single. And there's no way I'm going to get married. But the reasons for it in our culture is not because we want to serve the Lord. It's because, you know, I don't want to make a commitment. I'm scared of commitment. I'm, I don't want the sacrifice of having children. It's expensive to have children. There's all kinds of reasons that our culture also says that you shouldn't get married. And what Paul is doing, in the same way that he's challenging the Corinthian culture, he's challenging our culture. And he says that's not what the resolve is. The resolve is to serve the Lord. And um, I am single, but not for the reasons that my culture tells me. But it wasn't only uh, the culture of the Corinthians that they were having to deal with, but it was another thing, was their co the context of their time. There was something happening in Corinth at this time. We're not sure much about what it was, but it was some kind of trial. And you see this, in if you skip down to verse 26, Paul says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now, there's been a lot of speculation about what was the present distress that the Corinthians were dealing with. And it, now there's kind of a, some puzzling verses that follow. And if you just read this with me, starting in verse 28, I'm, I want to say a few things about this passage. Verse 28, this is what Paul says. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. What is that, appointed time? From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world 
is passing away. I just need to take a moment to explain a few phrases from these verses, okay? The first one is, what is the present distress in verse 26? Now, many people have thought that what this passage is talking about is um, that Paul thought that Jesus was coming back very soon. And so he was saying there is this kind of end of the world tribulation that is about to happen, and so there's no point in getting married. Jesus is coming back any minute, so don't even bother with it. Now, of course, that raises a major problem because that would mean that Paul was wrong. (laughs) Jesus did not come back more than 2,000 years later, and Jesus still hasn't come back. And, you know, some people would say, well, you know, it's not that big of a problem because Jesus did say that no one knows when he is coming back. Not, e- uh, no one, not even the Son, not even him. Only the Father knows. So many, you know, actually C.S. Lewis has an essay called The World's Last Night where he says, you know, the one thing that the Bible got wrong about when Jesus was coming back is the one thing that the Bible says that we're all ignorant about. The Bible admits that even Jesus is ignorant about And now, I don't think that necessarily works, but that's one way of approaching it. Um, I think that this passage, this present distress that the Corinthians were dealing with was some kind of trial like a famine that they were facing in that city. And and so, in the, the next kind of problem verse that it says in verse 29, where it says, the appointed time has grown very short. What is that talking about? The appointed time has grown short. Again, many people say, Jesus is coming soon. The, the time is approaching. John Calvin would say that this is actually just talking about how life is short. And for the Corinthians, because they're facing this present distress, some kind of famine, actually their life may be shorter than they were anticipating. And so he's saying, you better come to terms with what's the most important thing in your life. And um, do not let marriage, romantic relationships, children be the ultimate thing in your life because those things will end in this short life. It's not that they're bad. They're good things. They are not ultimate things. And so that's what he says lastly in this last little line in verse 31 for he says, for the present form of this world is passing away. Now, what does that mean? The present form of this world is passing away. Now, most of us, when we read that, that we'd say, that's the end of the world. Isn't that talking about the end of the world? Well, you know, it's actually helpful if you go to a, a later chapter in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, Paul is talking about the church, about Christians, and he, he describes the church this way. It's very interesting. They are those on whom the ends of the ages have met. He says, you are those on whom the ends of the ages have met. What does that mean, the ends of the ages have met? Well, what the, the way the Bible describes human history is as being divided into two ages, this present age and the age to come. There are two ages. And what he's saying is that these two ages touch one another. They overlap. They kiss each other precisely in this community. You are the overlap between the future world where God has set all things right and his kingdom has come and love, you know, it, uh, reigns over all things and, and God's glory is full and his presence is there. You are the beginning of that new world. Like when Paul says, you, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. You are part of that new world brought into the old world. And so when he says that this, the old world, is, this present age is passing away, 
It means that the new world has begun, and it's begun in the church. And that that is the most important thing in a Christian's life, is the belonging for God's kingdom. And so, the resolve is that marriage and family are not the most important things in our lives, but this coming age, the coming kingdom. And this is not just true for single people. This is true for single people and for married people. And, you know, it's quite amazing. Look at this, verse 29. I know we're looking at a lot of these verses. Look at, it, look at what verse 29 says. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Which is a startling verse because constantly single people are looking at married people thinking, I need to become like them. And Paul here says, no, the married people actually need to look at the single people and say, you need to become like them. Single people whose life is solely devoted to the Lord is a complete reversal of how we think. And so the way to transform singleness from powerlessness to power is through this resolve that the most important thing in my life is not marriage or family. If the Lord brings those things and I long for them, it's a blessing and I thank him for it. But it is not the ultimate thing. But when we have that power, what is the power? There's a power that single people have. What what is that power? And this is the, the third thing that we learn in this passage about singleness. Is that singleness is freedom. That's the way that uh, Paul talks in this passage. And you, so that means, first of all, singleness is, is not a command. It's not, you know, uh, Paul says this in verse 6, Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. And again, down at the, at the end there, verse 36, If anyone thinks he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, that word is virgin there, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. So, you know, the young guy is having urges, and Paul's not saying, listen, you have to live a single life, you have to, you know, reject those urges. He says, fine, God has given marriage as a good thing, get married. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, marriage is a good thing, And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Singleness is even better, though. And um, in all these passages, Paul has sexual purity as a top priority. And what the gift of singleness is, it is the freedom to serve God wholeheartedly without the distraction of longings for sexual intimacy and children. That's what the freedom is, and, and that that's possible. And that doesn't have to be a whole life, by the way. You could, for a season, you know, all of us are single for at least some portion of our life, right? So this is something that applies to all of us. If you're a young person, right, if you're a teenager, you're going to be single for some amount of time. And uh, until you get married, this is something that we all need to face. And in that singleness, there is a power and a freedom to serve the Lord. And, uh, you know, there's a great book that um, I've been uh, reading as we've been uh, going through these sections on singleness. It's called Redeeming Singleness. The guy's name is Barry Danilak, I think is how you say it. And uh, it goes through all the passages of Scripture that talk about singleness. If you're a single person, you might be interested in, in reading that. 
And, uh, and this is one of the things that Danilak says. He says, this does not imply that those with the gift of singleness are asexual individuals with no interest in marriage or family life. So having the gift of singleness doesn't mean that you don't care about getting married or you don't care about having children. It doesn't mean that. But it is suggesting that they experience a genuine freedom that allows them to serve God with a whole heart, irrespective of whether they ever experience the fulfillment of marital intimacy and family life. It is this freedom that Paul experiences and desires that the Corinthians might also have. Right? And you see that there, verse 32. Paul says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The gift of singleness is a life of freedom. And what, what the Bible says is the freedom is that I'm not tied up with a family and all the responsibilities of a family. And many of you know that. I, I, I mentioned this before, that I've known many single people who have time to give uh, to the church, to give to ministries, to give to their neighbors, to give to all kinds of people who are in their lives, and just to serve. And they are an immense blessing to those people. And what does the Lord give to those single people who serve that way? Uh, Jesus says that he promises that if you serve him, he will give you mothers, fathers, brothers, and sisters a hundredfold in this life and in the life to come, eternal life. And what he says is he, he gives the single people family. He doesn't leave them alone. Of course it's not good to be alone. And he will not leave them alone. And when we pursue him, we experience that blessing. And we think of singleness as an emptiness, as a loss, as a void, as a hollow life. But the Bible says that the experience of abundance and fullness comes from serving others. It is more blessed to give than to receive, Jesus says. And when you give your life away to the Lord, you all of a sudden realize all the resources you have. You realize the gifts that you have. You realize the love that you have. And you realize that the Holy Spirit is inside of you and you have this abundance inside of you when you're giving yourself to the Lord. And you find out that your life is not empty. It is not void. It is actually full. So the question is, how could I ever determine in my heart that the Lord is the most important thing and not a relationship or marriage or a family? Well, first, we have to admit that such a resolve is not natural for us. It's not natural for us to resolve that I only want to serve the Lord. And this description of the single life, gifted, resolved, free to serve the Lord, that is a description of Jesus. Jesus is the single man par excellence. He's the supreme single one. And, it, and he is the one who has lived the most fulfilling and meaningful life that anyone has ever lived, is Jesus. And it is in, so it's in him that this devoted life is ours by faith. And so that means for each one of us, whether we're married or we're single, we turn to him and we say, in him, uh, we uh, can have that devotion for the Lord and his kingdom. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the gifts 
that you have given to each of our lives. Help us to see that each one of us has been given a gift, um, an ability, an opportunity, a power to bless and serve others. And that as we bless and serve others, we would find that our life is not empty or void or disappointing, but we would see that our cup overflows, that your spirit lives in us, that you poured your love into our hearts by your Holy Spirit. I pray especially for those who are here who feel a deep pain about being single, longing for a family. I pray uh, that first you would comfort and minister to them. I pray that you would also give them courage uh, to resolve and determine in their hearts to be devoted to you and serving you. And Lord, each one of us, we trust our future to you, a future we cannot control. But we believe that you are good. And uh, we long to find our life in you alone. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.